This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just a heads up, y'all. This episode includes some mature language, which means it's probably going to be some cussing. What's good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. I'm B.A. Parker. All right, Parker. So if I asked you who Jennifer Schultz was, would you know who I was talking about? Uh, probably not. Is she an actor or something? I mean, she is an actor in a sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So if I told you she was Barbecue Becky. Oh, she's the lady with the shades. Yes. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you could conjure up her face, her backstory. Yeah, I can see her clear as day in my mind's eye with her sour expression mm-hmm. and her sunglasses on, holding the phone to her face. Yeah, like in that cell phone video that went viral that made her famous or infamous, I guess, she was calling the police on some black folks who were having a cookout. Um, yeah, I'd like to report that someone is illegally using a You know, in a public park, as you do. And of course, she started bawling when she was confronted. She told the cops that she was scared. That was such a ridiculous moment. And I'm glad that we could, you know, laugh at it because there's another timeline in which that whole situation goes left when mm-hmm. the police show up and draw their weapons yep. and... Then we're talking about that video for completely different reasons. Yeah. I remember how people at the time kept commenting on how they were glad it it only ended in her crocodile tears. And, you know, people just started getting these jokes off. So when she was getting roasted, it was like this moment of catharsis. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And... Not to get all sociological about it, but... Humor is one way people transmit and affirm shared cultural values. <laughs> <laughs> like, jokes are a really important way that we say to each other, like, this is the kind of stuff we like. And when we roast you, we're sanctioning some stuff that we don't like. And this is what awaits you if you decide to move this way, like in the case of Barbara Becky. Yeah, and it feels like social media has supercharged this, like... We're just consuming so much disturbing stuff so fast now. Mm -hmm. And there are so many more platforms for us to collectively laugh to keep from crying. Yeah, and there's been so much good dark humor on social media over the last few years about all the things that afflict us right now, right? Like late capitalism and the coming climate apocalypse and skyrocketing inequality. So on our next two episodes, we felt like, all right, we should chop it up with some professionals. Comedians, that is. And we wanted to talk with them about how they talk about race, because who knows more about laughing to keep from crying? And speaking of how social media supercharges all this stuff, we want to introduce you to our first guest. I am Z-Way. I do iconic things for a living. (laughs) Iconic things like what? Iconic can mean anything. You know, people consider Martin Luther King an icon, but others consider Robert E. Lee an icon, so it kind of... (laughs) Wavers between the two extremes. <laughs> so she bridges the gap. <laughs> For those of y'all who don't know Z-Way, she has a show on Showtime called, appropriately, Z-Way. And if there's a kind of through line in Z-Way's humor that I can identify, is that she's kind of fascinated with people's hypocrisy around race. American Girl Doll Imperial Wives Collection. Introducing our newest doll, Tina. 
a modern black capitalist who uses social justice language for profit. Look at her tweet on her little iPad. She loves to speak for all black people. American Girl Doll Imperial Wives Collection. In stores now. Z-Way has been doing comedy for a while, but she really, really blew up during the early part of the pandemic, right when we were all locked down for real. And she would be having these conversations with celebrities or quasi-celebrities on Instagram Live. Yeah, and quite a few of the people she was interviewing were talking to her as part of their apology tours because they had some recent faux pas about race. Right, and Z-Way is basically instigating, like she's nudging them to tell on themselves. Like that time she was talking to influencer slash maybe scammer lady Caroline Calloway. My favorite authors, James Baldwin. You read James Baldwin? Yes, are you kidding me? I feel like I'm the only white person ever who read If Beale Street Could Talk before it became a movie. You're giving yourself too much credit, but... I really am. I really am. I'm like, can you see my halo above my head? Like, I am the perfect white savior. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> that is the energy and the sensibility that she brings to her Showtime show and I'm not gonna lie Parker like I was kind of shook coming into this conversation with Z-Way why? Um, because I thought she was gonna bring this same energy in our conversation towards me yeah. like she has this very unnerving affect she's kind of jumpy she's very attentive like it feels like she doesn't blink at all <laughs> um, the whole time she's talking she has either like a really flat expression or a big smile on her face but she's like very tuned in and you know it's like watching her interview people is like watching somebody in an exam with a very genial <laughs> alert proctologist and I was just worried about <laughs> being on the business end of that so I asked her about that shtick I think that's part of the profession of comedy. I mean, you are just being an active listener and reacting to your audience in real time. So I'm just really present, honestly. But this comedy that I've created is derived from my experiences where you're just living your life, Mm -hmm. minding your business, and someone will approach you and say absolutely wild things. And you're supposed to react with a very demure Mm-hmm. Um, respectful manner. And so years of conditioning have taught me how to hear wild things and say wild things without really sort of tipping my hand. But I've definitely, like, I think that I'm not, that's not unique to myself. I think that there are people, black women specifically around the world, around the country, who can speak to living their life at like a work function and someone randomly like telling them about the black friend that they had as a kid. And you're like, sir, this is a Wendy's. Why are you telling me? And so that is reflected in my work, but it's not specific to me, maybe. We want to play you a sketch that is playing off of some of these dynamics. Sure. In this skit, you're sitting in a classroom with a bunch of parents who are vocal opponents of critical race theory. Yeah. Y'all are playing charades. Slim, Flo, Tommy Smith, and Jean Carlos at the Olympics. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And one woman... That's not a good charade term. Come on, Vito. She throws some kind of wheels on the bus situation with her hands. It's very kind of... I was like, where, where is she going with this? What is happening? <laughs> Mona is progressively... And then in the next round of charades, one parent takes another parent sort of and walks her across the room, which is supposed to symbolize Jim Crow. You can tell us. You can tell, tell us. Jim Crow. Jim Crow? Oh, God. Wait, what? Why is Mona... What does that have to do with her standing over there? Separate? Separate. Oh, separate. Like, separate but equal. (laughs) Um. What is the outrage about critical race theory? It seems sort of sudden, like a post-2020, like, 
uprisings. And so obviously, like one of the first jokes about critical race theory is you can't even explain the premise of critical race theory without talking about race. Mm -hmm. And so if you're thinking about, okay, let's get critical race theory out of schools. How do you teach like a huge chunk of American history without talking about race or and so with charades that's a game that requires no speaking at all do you think about how certain jokes might land with different audiences like so much of your comedy is kind of high context Mm. do you wonder how people who may not understand the controversy metabolize the human that you're trying to pull off here So I really live at the epicenter of combining high concept and low concept, right? Mm -hmm. People will have very different reactions and they will have the confirmation bias in what they see for their own perspective. And they can be totally the opposite. So I can't control how people consume my work. I just put it out there. Hmm. But I usually say that whenever you're learning, cut it out. That's boring, right? My goal (laughs) is to make people laugh first and foremost, right? Mm -hmm. The education, whatever you take from that, that's your business, that's your prerogative, but I want to make people laugh. In that same episode where you did the charades with those anti-CRT parents, Mm. you also interviewed Charlemagne. Yes. He is one of the hosts of The Breakfast Club, which is a very popular radio show, if y'all don't know. And Charlemagne, you know, sort of a provocateur. He has this whole barbershop conservatism thing happening, you know what I mean? Uh, (laughs) He wrote the book... Black privilege, which is everything you expect when you hear something like that. We're going to play a clip of him on your show where you compare the idea of reparations to punching somebody in the face. But then it's like, let's say I get paid $5 a day to punch you in the face. And I punch you in the face every day for 10,000 days and I make $50,000. And then on the 10,001 day, I say, I will not punch anyone in the face. What if I give the money back? So would you say to this camera that you're pledging to donate 100% of your salary to black women's reparations? 100%? 100%. I will, I will, I will pledge that I will help uh, black women make a lot of money. That's so vague. No, I do it now. I mean, I got, number one, I got four daughters. That's yes. number one. And I'm married to a beautiful black woman. Okay, so you have a wife and daughters. Yes. Brave. <laughs> <laughs> So in the visual element, there's a headline that says feminist icon has daughters and wife. <laughs> yes. So it's so many different levels. But what my interview show allows is to see guests in their most vulnerable moments, even if they're being acutely cautious and calculated in their answers, mm-hmm. that sort of calculation is also honesty it is to say i have this question i know that society has this rules for how you should answer these questions and i'm going to abide Hmm. that says something about a personality as well right Mm -hmm. and so i think that my interview show offers like vulnerable honest people and you're getting quotes from them that have never existed on television before right because that's a testament to the structure of the show and the line of questioning has anyone ever said something that was like truly surprising to you So I have no expectations when I go into interviews. I have no expectations, honestly. So everything that my guests say are surprising. I have no Hmm. idea how they're going to answer any of these questions. In fact, the premise of the show is that the questions are impossible to answer. Hmm. And so once you get past that, suddenly we're in this really interesting, unique space where anything goes and anything can happen. And again, you're watching like fresh, surprising, like really radical comedy. And I mean, to your point about getting people to be revealing and getting the answer questions, some of the questions you ask are really straightforward and simple, but also really deceptive. They're traps. Yeah. Like one question you come back to a lot was, how many black friends do you have? How many black friends do you have? 
Um, 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 very many six close black friends. I don't have any black friends, to be honest. What are you talking about? You, one. Or what do you qualitatively like about black people? What do you qualitatively like about black people? <laughs> this one's hard. There's no right or wrong answer, right? You either say... Why did you choose those questions? Totally. I mean, it's wild because those are objective questions that have no answers. But what's interesting is those two questions came out of the 2020 Instagram lives I would do with celebrities Mm -hmm. during like the uprisings. And people kept saying the same answer, which was Mm -hmm. four to five friends. And and I thought that was such a weird trend. Between four and five. Yeah. Like four to five. I don't like that's why certainly we can't all have four to five. Why do you think that people knowing that they might be cast in an unfavorable light? in a way that a lot of like celebrity interviews would never do. Um, why do you think they decide to talk to you? So we prep all of our guests. Contrary to popular belief, I'm not hog-tying people and putting them in the basement and then putting a camera in front of their face as I like berate them with really, really stressful questions. They're willing participants. And I think you'd have to ask each guest because it, it differs. You know, Some people are a fan of my comedy. Others are just want to ha- talk. <laughs> Others you know, are really brave and want to be honest. And so I think that that's not a question that I could answer. Mm-hmm. In the way that every guest reacts differently to questions, every guest has a different reason for why they're in the room. I'm kind of blown away that they prep these guests and then they still come onto her show <laughs> and say the stuff that they say to her into a camera. Right? Like, shout out to their bad publicist for gifting us with all this fodder for comedy. Shout out to bad publicists. <laughs> Z-Way was telling me that she spends most of her time talking about race and politics on her show because this is the stuff that shapes how and who she can be in the world. You know, there's this Langston Hughes essay called The Negro Artist in the Racial Mountain. And basically, it's like this contention with like, do you have to be a black artist or can you just be an artist, right? Or, or is like the element of blackness like a part of what makes your art so specific to you and your culture? And can you actually separate those things? Mm. Or do you want to separate those things? And so I think with my work, I don't necessarily think about it in terms of like, I am the comedian talking about the hard-hitting truths. To me, my work is more of like a trauma response. Hmm. Like the work comes from the internal experience of existing as a black woman in America. Z-Way is the host of Z-Way, which which airs on Showtime. Thank you so much for rocking with us. Thanks, guys. All right, y'all. After the break, we'll hear from more comedians on how they think about race. Early in my career, when I would portray my parents in a bit, they would have an accent. Anytime I would talk about my mom, it was like, ay, mija. My mom doesn't call me mija. That's after the break, y'all. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Gene. Parker. Code Switch. We're going to queue up our next professional jokester. I am a stand-up comedian, an actress, an author, a dog mom, a wife, a sister, a friend, all those things. That is a very elder millennial bio. (laughs) Yep, just a long list of social roles and jobs. Right? And I'm going to add one more. Do you remember Angela Johnson Reyes when she was on Mad TV? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was a sketch comedy show that helped launch the careers of Jordan Peele, Keegan-Michael Key. And a lot of Angela's comedy is about her identity. It kind of plays on the way that people struggle to place her or the way she doesn't always fit in. Like, she's Mexican, but her name is Angela Johnson. You know what I mean? Like, she's kind of ambiguous to a lot of people. And the joke Angela shared with us is from her Netflix special, Not Fancy. For instance, okay, there is a hierarchy in the Latino culture. We don't talk about it, but it's there. There's all kinds of different Latinos, right? Mexican, Puerto Rican, Salvadorian, Cuban, Colombian, Dominican, blah, 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 blah. All kinds of us, right? And like my husband, he's Puerto Rican. Okay, any Puerto Ricans here tonight? Hey, all seven of California's Puerto Ricans came out tonight. My husband, he's Puerto Rican, right? So he thinks Puerto Ricans are at the top because they have J-Lo. All right, we get it. Team Puerto Rico, one point. Well played. Me, I'm Mexican. Okay, any Mexicans here tonight? So pretty much everybody else. I'm Mexican, so I think Mexicans are at the top because we have the best food. These are just facts, you guys. Google it if you want to. We're not even, like, the best in the Latino foods. Like, we jumped into regular food category. You know what I mean? Like, ask any of your friends what their favorite food is. Nine out of ten times they're going to go, oh, uh, favorite food, pizza, Chinese, and Mexican. They don't say Latino. Oh, I like Latino food. All-encompassing Latino food. Nah, bro. They say Mexican. That's what's up. I feel like I recognized it even more when I got married because my husband is Puerto Rican and I'm Mexican and that we always would battle with each other. And I remember when he first came to meet my family for the holidays and my family was asking him, hey, what's the difference between Mexican food and Puerto Rican food? Like, we never even heard of Puerto Rican food. Like, they didn't even know. So they're like, what's the difference? 
And he was like, this is what he said to my entire family. He goes, um, it's like Puerto Rican food is more like high quality. <laughs> and we were like, what? <laughs> like record scratch, like, excuse me? But shout out to Mofongo, though. What? Come on. What is Mofongo? You live in New York, you've never had Mofongo? Uh-huh. All right, so Mofongo's like a stew where like plants and fritters in it. It can have seafood, it can have pork. Oh. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of stuff in it. Uh, it's, it's like savory. It's just, Parker, we need to get you some Mofongo. <gasps> yes, please. Anyway, I digress. He didn't mean like maliciously. I think, I don't know what he was trying to say, but he cannot eat Mexican food because he always gets an upset stomach when he eats Mexican food. So I think he was speaking from his own personal experience. But anyway, so my husband and I would always battle about Mexican things versus Puerto Rican things, how they would do things in their culture, how we would do things in our culture. And we go back and forth. So that's kind of how that started me talking about this topic of the hierarchies. It's like something I knew was always there, but it definitely became heightened once my husband got involved in this situation. Angela says, okay, normally, you know, she's on Twitter just, you know, getting these jokes off or whatever. And people will respond, and then, you know, everything kind of dies down. But she said when she posted this clip from her special, it really hung around. You know, I remember an old Code Switch episode when a guest said something like, maybe what it means to be Latino is to argue over what it means to be Latino. Mm-hmm. And this sounds like one of those arguments. <laughs> yep. Every single day, till this day, I still get comments on that video of people arguing with each other of who has the better food. Like, you know, where did rice and beans really start? In Mexico or in, you know what I mean? And it's like, oh my gosh, it's just a joke, you guys. It's a joke, but it also kind of rings true. Oh yeah, for sure. Like Angela said, she saw the audience was really getting it when the joke was something that they can relate to. And her comedy evolved. Like, one of the things she told us was that it took her a long time to get to a place where she felt like she could be honest about her insecurities, about her identity. That requires some vulnerability. Absolutely. And she jokes about that in a Netflix special. Like, she has that bit about ranking Latinos, but it's followed by her riffing on feeling like she's falling short. And it's a kind of falling short that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Mm. I may think Mexicans are at the top, but I'm not the top Mexican. I still don't speak Spanish. I know. I wish I did. Any other Latinos here that do not speak Spanish? Where are you? See, I'm not the only one. Air fives. (laughs) Where are Latinos at that do speak Spanish? Where are you guys at? Oh, congratulations. You're better than us. I bet you put it on your resume too, huh? Bilingual, Spanish, and English. Happy face, happy face. Well, good for you. Felicidades. So, of course, like off stage, you might be insecure about the fact you can't speak Spanish around people who speak Spanish. Like, we get that. But on stage, she was like, yo, this is actually like kind of a functional storytelling dilemma. Because, like, you know, she can't really resort to a lot of cliches that she would have used as a shorthand to her audience to be like, I'm Mexican with a Mexican family. Because she said, none of that stuff is actually true. 
I grew up wishing I was more Mexican than I felt that I actually was. And that's because I didn't speak Spanish fluently. I lived in a different part of town, a different neighborhood that wasn't full of Latinos. It was, you know, very diverse. And I feel like I always wanted to be something more, more Mexican than I felt I actually was. And when I first started stand-up comedy, I would portray myself as what I wanted to be, as what I wished I was, as what I thought people expected of me. So even though I didn't speak Spanish, my parents don't speak Spanish, early in my career when I would portray my parents in a bit, they would have an accent. They would speak in broken English. Anytime I would talk about my mom, it was like, ay, mija. My mom doesn't call me mija. My mom will leave me a voice message and be like, hey, girl. She talks like me. You know what I mean? Like, but when I started to gain my own point of view, my own perspective, and be vulnerable with my insecurity about the fact that I don't speak Spanish, I could feel people connecting and relating. Not only the people in the audience who are like, oh yeah, me too, I don't speak Spanish too, but the people who just relate and connect with authenticity. They were like, don't be who we want you to be, be you. That's what we're responding to is authenticity. We're responding to truth. That was Angela Johnson Reyes. Her Netflix stand-up special is called Not Fancy. And our last comedian tonight, I kind of feel like Joe Torrey on Def Comedy Jam saying that. I mean, Talking about elder millennials. <laughs> our last comedian in this episode is Joel Kim Booster. Any, any visible minority can relate to this, though, is that the thing is, is like, when you're a visible minority, everybody wants to pathologize, like, everything you do to the rest of the group. And it's so stressful. Like, I went to a house party recently in L.A., and there were three other Asian people at this party, and none of us knew each other. We were all brought there sponsored by a different white friend. And um, and yet, every single one of us, and I'm not shitting you, we all somehow arrived to this party wearing something with the Tasmanian devil on it. Um, and I was like, oh no, what have we done? You know? Like, I called us all into the kitchen. I was like, somebody's got to change. We're creating a new stereotype for these people. But it was too late. There was already people walking around the party like, yeah, I guess it's the year of the Taz. Um, You know, like Chinese astrology, it's different from ours. So Joel has been kind of everywhere lately. Right? I've loved him in Fire Island. Yes, me too. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Right? I love how it's this modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice and... It follows a group of gay friends who are doing their yearly summer trip to party on this island off the coast of New York. And Joel doesn't just star in Fire Island. He actually wrote Fire Island. I also found out during this that uh, he wrote for Big Mouth, which is like one of my favorite shows ever. Anyway, back to this joke about the Tasmanian Devil shirt. When we talked to Joel recently, he told us that that all actually happened. You know, like it wasn't like we all just showed up in a red shirt. It was that we showed up in something like I, I'm not a big Looney Tunes fan. I'm not sure that the other three were big Looney Tunes fans. It just was like this week, like and that is and that is comedy, like literally lightning striking twice somewhere. Obviously, there wasn't a white girl walking around the party saying that, like, she thought it was the year of Taz, you know, but like somebody did ask if that if Taz was an important part, like somehow became an icon in Asian American culture. So like it was a figuring out a way to like take what was real and then heighten it enough to make it absurd and funny. It's the silliest way 
for me to sort of communicate that experience to audiences that might not understand what that is like of the worry that in the the anxiety around being a minority especially a visible minority that is constantly worried that you are not representing you know the rest of the group well because of you know this that or the other thing and um and it just is like sort of the, the most absurd you know version of that Yeah, I know a lot of people will feel that part where he's talking about being all worried about representing the rest of the group, you know, the rep sweats. Yes. And, you know, this particular anxiety for Joel, as the expression goes, is something he arrived at, honestly. So he's the adopted son of white parents. And so as a kid, he was isolated and he was lonely. And he kind of really was representing the rest of the group. You know, I was the only Asian person a lot of people knew for many years um, before I moved to Chicago and before I moved to New York. And um, it was something that like sort of kept happening to me over and over again. I'm not even sure I was I was fully aware of it until much later in life, but just the, the constant pressure of like, anytime I do something, they'd be like, oh yeah, Joel's doing that. Asians love X, Y, Z, you know, or you know, when I was learning to drive, and I am still a very bad driver, and I have jokes about that, too, that talk about, you know, just, like, the pressure of, like, being a bad driver while Asian and seeing the look in people's eyes while you're on the road of being like, oh, of course, it's an Asian person who almost cut me off there. And 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 then feeling this pressure of, like, oh, my God, I just solidified, you know, a <laughs> decade's worth, a half a century's worth of stereotypes about um, Asian people for that that one person, and they're going to go away, and who knows what narrative is happening in their head. And- mm, the representation trap. Yep, yep. And to anyone who feels this, we feel you. Yeah, we feel you, but you also, you know I mean, you got to let that go. Yeah, I mean, it's a game you can never win. Mm-hmm. You're not going to make anybody who thinks Asians are bad drivers reconsider by showing them that you're a good driver. Listen, there's a bunch of reasons to become a better driver, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, not dying. Mm-hmm. Um, proving people wrong should not be on that list. But back to Joel, he did let a lot of that go when he went on a trip to Japan. It was Tokyo. I went to Japan for a friend's birthday. And it. I cannot describe to you what happened to me there, which was for the first time in my life, I was just another face in the crowd, you know? And I didn't realize the weight that I was carrying around with me every day in America just worrying about like you know what people people in public seeing me do certain things like if I'm jaywalking are they gonna think that all Asians jaywalk now you know and like it was so freeing to just sit on public transit in Tokyo and just look and and not have that worry because suddenly like you know people weren't seeing me as an other they were just seeing me as another person and joel said okay this weird coincidence in which three grown people somehow showed up at the same party in their finest looney tune drip helps illustrate how a lot of this really dumb stuff we panic over because it has much higher stakes i think that like anybody who walks around in this country who looks different understands that experience you know they like see themselves reflected back in that experience and it's like little things you know like there are certainly versions of this story that are more fraught you know like the driving thing or you know there are bigger versions of this this phenomenon that happen that are more dire and more um sort of like nerve-wracking for people of color especially 
It's interesting to think about how differently each of these comedians is approaching this stuff. And you can hear how their personal stories shape their comedy. Yeah, and something each of them seems to be saying is that, like, it's really important that we find a way to joke about all of this and that you can't be didactic about it, even if you want to push people. I mean, here's Joel again. Well, one of the big reasons why comedy is such an important medium to tackle some of these issues is that to be a good comedian, you sort of have to stay two steps ahead of what's going on in the discourse now. I want to be starting a new conversation that hasn't happened yet. That was Joel Kim Booster. He's a comedian and the star and writer of Fire Island. His latest Netflix special is Psychosexual. And y'all, that has been our show. You can follow us on IG and Twitter at NPR Codeswitch. I'm on Twitter at G-E-E-D-E-215. Parker is at A Parker's Farce. If email is more your thing, ours is codeswitch at NPR.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever y'all get your podcasts. You can find our newsletter at NPR.org slash newsletters. This episode was produced by Deepa Modisham and Summer Tomad. It was edited by Dahlia Mortada, Steve Drummond, and Leah Danella. And shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive. That's Christina Kala. That's Jess Kung. That's Kumari Devarajan. That's Karen Grigazi Bates. And that's Alyssa Jong Perry. As for me, I'm Gene Demby. I'm B.A. Parker. Be easy, y'all. Hydrate. Hey there. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Code Switch Plus listeners. We appreciate you and thank you for being a subscriber. Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means getting to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. And it also helps support our show. So if you love our work, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org slash codeswitch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home, home, what we all eventually long to get back to, no matter what took us away to begin with. Those at Delta know that, because all 100,000 of them are, above all, travelers just like you. It's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.